Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Zach and Marcus here on presenting duties, but we are not going to be doing another episode of Sharpshooters for you today. One of those will come along in a short while. Marcus, who have we got with us today? We've got Sam Wilson with us, battlefield and conflict archaeology specialist, uh, who we met basically through Waterloo Uncovered, but he does many other projects. Uh, some of them he's going to tell us about today, really. Uh, a really interesting area for military history nerds like ourselves, that it's not just any old archaeology. We're kind of getting into really specialist stuff, and that's Sam's uh, bag. How are you doing, Sam? I'm very well, thank you, and uh, thanks for having me on, guys. That was an absolute pleasure. Let's dive straight in with the basics for people. Marcus has alluded, it, alluded to it already. You've got archaeology and battlefield and, and also conflict archaeology. And these are terms that we sort of rattle around a fair bit, but folks might not be familiar with them. So what's the difference between the, the two or, or even three? So, so really, I suppose conflict archaeology is a sub-discipline within archaeology as an o- overarching subject. Archaeology, of course, dealing with the basically the human past, very broadly speaking. So within that, you have this uh, section of, of conflict archaeology, and that deals with anything associated with conflict. So it doesn't necessarily have to be battlefields. It can be prisoner of war camps, it can be uh, graffiti, it can be art relating to warfare, all of those kind of things. But then within the subcategory of conflict archaeology, you have this further category, which is battlefield archaeology. And that is specifically dealing with the actual sites of conflict and trying to understand them, trying to understand the landscapes that they were fought in, as well as the actual objects that were deposited during the course of that particular battle. So is this a little bit like, well, in a sense, it is a bit like history and then military history. But what I'm curious about is, is there sort of beef between the different sub-disciplines? You know how some military historians turn around and say, oh, military history is withering away and it's dying. And others turn around and say, mm, no, it isn't. And there's there's sort of discussion about tensions. Do you get an equivalent? Is there sort of archaeology beef going on? 
Um, I, to, to be perfectly honest with you, that there really isn't that much beef in archaeology. It, it's ultimately it's a very collaborative process. Where you, I, I, I'd imagine history is a or can be a bit more of a solitary pursuit, where you are in an archive, you're at a computer writing, and so on. But archaeology, you really cannot do it on your own. You, you have to be part of a team, and everyone in that team will bring their own. Uh, specialist knowledge and their own experience and uh, and viewpoint to that team so you know it's very much the opposite really everyone will happily work together very often and, and that will include historians that will include specialists from other subsects of archaeology like uh, environmental archaeology for example is very important um, and and I don't I'm I don't really uh, fully understand everything that there is to know about environmental archaeology but I'll happily defer to someone who knows more than me, you know. So actually, I think it's a very, well, most of the time, it's a very healthy and collaborative process. Okay. It's a very diplomatic answer. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but you're a conflict archaeologist. What do you do that people who are maybe a mainstream archaeologist don't do? What's your real nitty-gritty specialism? What's your, what's your toolkit? Well, I, I suppose the main way that, Battlefield archaeology differs mostly is through the use of metal detectors. And traditionally, you know, there's been a bit of animosity perhaps between archaeologists and metal detectorists because of, you know, the sort of perception that metal detectorists might not record their finds properly or might sell them or, or, or whatever. Yeah. And, and night hawkings are really, really uh, serious crime. You know, so it's doing yeah, real damage. Absolutely. And, and, you know, if you are caught illegally detecting on a scheduled monument, you, you can ultimately get prosecuted for it. So it's quite a serious thing. Um, and, uh, you know, schemes like the Portable Antiquities Scheme that's been running for a good long while now, it, you know, is trying to address that sort of, um, uh, you know, that uh, what was a deficit and, and actually record things properly and so on. But the principal tool really to investigate battlefields, particularly uh, ones where there's a lot of metal in the ground, such as, you know, Napoleonic battles, Civil War battles, you're going to be using the metal detector and you're going to be using it in a systematic way. Um, and, and that's how we recover the objects and we plot them and, and try and understand them. But you do still occasionally come across archaeologists who are a little bit set in their ways, perhaps, and they'll see a metal detector and you know, they'll still, for some reason, get that little bit of like, oh, I don't like metal detectors. But the reality is that it's an exceptionally useful tool, not just on battlefields, on any archaeological site, more or less, unless you're dealing with something in way back in prehistory, where there is no metal being used or very, very little of it. So I see it as a just another archaeological tool. And for battlefields, it probably is the most important tool. So for People like myself who grew up with Time Team, is this the equivalent, uh, my detecting, as when they always used to send out the GeoFids surveys and they had those really, really bad pixelated black and white blocks and someone with a, a grimy finger would go, that's definitely a Roman villa. And it just looked like a load of pixels to me. But they were, <laughs> they were finding something under the ground rather than digging out the whole field in uh, Oxfordshire. Is, is that kind of the equivalent? You're starting to pin down, uh, I know at Warsaw and Cover just starting to go, actually, here's a, you know, collection of French musket balls. So they're firing at something 
or somebody who stood in this general area? Is that how it's building up a picture for you? Or is it? Yeah, exactly. Else? It's. I mean, the, the best analogy really is to compare it to the archaeological technique of field walking, where you will systematically uh, walk across a, a field and a landscape and pick up bits of pottery and, and bits of tile and so on that are just lying on the surface that have been churned up through ploughing. Um, and effectively, we're doing the same kind of technique, but just with metal detectors. And it, it is similar to geophysics in the sense that we're sort of covering a landscape to try and understand a wider picture. But I, I would say it's a bit more like field walking um, in that we can't necessarily see what's under the ground. All we're doing is we're, we're finding the objects that are what we call unstratified, which are not contained within any archaeological features. They're just in the topsoil and they've been churned around through ploughing and, and so on. I'm really interested about the, the challenge of locating things on a battlefield, because if nobody's ever been to a battlefield, perhaps this won't have occurred to them, but they are big places. You know, they are quite simply fields. That's the yeah. clues in the name, really. So trying to work out where is where it's worth investing the time must be hugely challenging. Is this part of where metal detecting comes in? Because it also strikes me that, yes, OK, you can cover a larger area. But, you know, if you've got a, a battlefield that's seven kilometres wide, you can be in one corner. It doesn't really matter if the, the main action, the, the relevant artefacts are in another. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and there's always a lot of preliminary work that goes into, well, where do we start? And the further back in time you go, really, the more difficult it becomes. Uh, if you imagine the Battle of Waterloo, there, there's so many accounts written about it. Uh, and we know exactly where the battle was for. You know, the farms are still there. The landscape is not too changed from how it was. But, you know... The further back you go, back into the 17th century or the 15th century or the 13th century, you know, the landscape has changed more dramatically. And crucially, there are far fewer accounts that are written about it. Certainly far fewer that were written by people that were there. Um, and often the ones that do survive are written sometime after or they have a particular agenda based on what they're, they're trying to portray. I, you know, we're trying to make the victorious side look good so we're going to exaggerate the numbers and we're going to exaggerate this and, and that so it start you start off any project really by looking at or attempting to reconstruct the historic landscape of the battlefield so what do we think that this looked like in whatever date it was that the battle was fought in the 15th century or the 17th century or, or whatever and that will involve a bit of map regression looking at historic maps as far back as that can get you, as well as looking at um, documents about land holding and stuff like that to try and work out what land was where and how big it was and, and what it was used for, crucially, because you, you need a big area to put an army at the end of the day. If you've got lots of tiny enclosures, it's a very, very poor place to deploy an army, certainly in the medieval period. So the historic landscape is one thing. And then you need to be looking at the historic accounts of the battle. And that, as I said, they may be few and far between, potentially. Um, but often they will contain certain topographic clues uh, as to where the battle may have been fought. You know, sometimes there are multiple theories across a wide area about where it was at all. 
you know, and they'll say things like, um, you know, they were on the road or they were on the hill or they went to the north of the town. And they're never that specific, like in, in later periods. Um, but there's always usually something in there that might be useful. Um, and then kind of the third component really is uh, anything that's been found in the area previously by casual metal detecting, by previous archaeological work, or, or sort of a bit of local legend as well kind of comes into it a little bit, although you have to treat that with a little bit of caution. Um, and so all of that really builds into, well, where do we now start with the metal detecting? Or, or you know, if we're looking for some uh, ditches that they dug during the battle, what, you know, where are we going to try and, and find them? In that scenario, we might also do geophysics to see what's up, what's there. Um, but then we'll basically pick an area to see what's there and we'll, we'll, we'll test it. And then we'll start revising the strategy as we go along. So based on the results. So we might go to an area where we think I'm 100 percent certain that this is the middle of the battlefield, like all of the evidence pointing towards this particular location. I've got a good feeling about it. And then you go there. You do a load of metal detecting, a really systematic, intensive way, and you don't find anything. And then you go and I go, ah, that really was not what I expected. And so that evening you sort of think about it and you go, right, well, why didn't we find anything? Is there something in the field we're not taking account of? Like we're just dealing with a pasture field that hasn't been ploughed for a very long time? Or are we just in the wrong place? Or have we misinterpreted something? Etc. Etc. And then you effectively modify your strategy as you go along. Fantastic. I mean, this sounds like real detective work, but um, there's some real science behind all your procedures as well. If you can just talk about that, that gives you a load of sense of perspectives and different, you know, resources and skills. So I just wonder if you could talk us through some of the, the scientific processes that you use on these battlefields. Um, I mean, I suppose the scientific process is really, they kind of come into play prior to actually the fieldwork stage. So we, we're dealing with stuff like um, LIDAR imagery, satellite imagery, um, sort of various mapping uh, applications, as well as geophysics to potentially look for things like, uh, you know, ditches if they were dug during the battle or things like mass graves as well. Um, the actual undertaking the fieldwork element is probably one of the least technical parts of it. Um, you, you're literally just doing some metal detecting, really, is what it boils down to. Um, and then you'll have the analysis that comes after that. So there'll be a lot of, um, you know, again, it's, it's not necessarily in-depth scientific analysis. It's just looking at things very closely, really. Um, but if you are dealing with things like human remains every now and then, which, you you know, you have the potential to come across on the battlefield, of course, that's a whole new level of, uh, of, of assessment and, uh, and analysis that a specialist uh, osteologist would have to would have to do. Um, so, yeah, we, we sort of typically use all the tools that archaeologists generally have available to them. Um, and there are new techniques coming out sort of all the time, Think, things like LIDAR. And satellite imagery, that's revolutionised archaeology in many ways. Um, enabling... Just explain to folks what LIDAR is. Uh, li sorry, yes, I should probably. LIDAR is basically um, a, an aerial scan of a landscape where 
thousands and thousands of lasers are shot down from a plane and it will map the surface of the earth. And because of the way that it shoots all these millions of lasers, it can see through things like tree cover as well. Um, and you can pick up very subtle undulations in the ground. So where there may have previously been some earthworks associated with the battle or, you know, some change in the landscape or historic field boundaries that were in use at the time of the battle, things like that. Um, so it can help us identify landscape features that aren't there anymore or, or at the very least are difficult to see at ground level um, and pick them out. That sounds that incredibly sense. detailed. Is that expensive process as well? Uh, it used to be because you used to have to sort of um, arrange it all and, and, and that kind of thing. But actually, the vast majority of the country, certainly the UK and a lot of other European countries now are, are covered by uh, freely available LIDAR. In this country, it's the Environment Agency that's made it all available. And you can literally go onto their website and, and download the uh, information. You can then import into a, a GIS uh, program. And you can have a look at it for yourself. Anyone can do it, basically. I'm curious also about something that you said there about finding battle casualties, dead bodies, effectively. Yeah. My sense is that finding those who died in battle is actually quite rare. Is that a fair assessment? And if so, what's the reason for that, do you feel? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is a fair assessment, you know, the number of mass graves that have been found on battlefields is pretty limited. Um, it, you know, if you think with Waterloo Uncovered, we've been working at Waterloo now for five, five years, unfortunately slightly paused at the moment because of COVID. Uh, but we've done five seasons of work there. And the only burial, if you like, that we've come across is a, an amputation pit um, at Mont Saint-Jean Farm. We haven't come across a single grave of an individual, of a horse even, um, or, or indeed a mass grave. And you consider the amount of casualties that were on that field at the end of the day. That's, it's kind of unusual in, in a way. Um, with some of the earlier battles, um, again, it's sort of even rarer or, or, or less potential, I suppose, because the numbers will be that much smaller in most occasions. Um, but often they were removed to consecrated ground, if that was nearby. Um, you know, and sometimes they were interred on the battlefield and then a few years later they were then dug up and, and moved. In that scenario, you could, in theory, find where the graves were, at the very least. Um, I, I think they managed to do that at Towson, actually. Um, but, yeah... Partly they haven't been found because people haven't really looked for them. You know, part, you're not really going out there with the objective of looking for a mass grave to go and dig it up at the end of the day, you know, because unless, unless it's threatened with development, i.e. someone wants to build an industrial estate over the top of it, there's not actually any need to dig them up, you know. And that, that there's a, an element of respect that has to come into it, you know, we, if you do come across human remains, of course, ethically, as an archaeologist, you have to deal with everything uh, respectfully. And there's not really any need to go hunting mass graves and digging them up for the sake of it. You know, if you come across one in the course of other work, then OK, you know, you deal with it appropriately. Um, so I think that's part of it, really. People haven't 
necessarily gone out to try and locate them really yet. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's really interesting. Um, something Zach and I are very passionate about on our side things is the, the casualties from uh, like kind of long or distant conflicts. And it's, it's really interesting to hear the the ethical conflict within your own mind and within the industry, I guess, the sector uh, that goes behind that. Something you said earlier, you were saying about uh, the, the dangers of assumptions. And I was wondering how it kind of balances, especially at the beginning of a project, you might have some good examples where there's a, a misconception or historians who've done archive research and it's leading them down one path. And actually your work starts to disprove a point or say that maybe the battlefield wasn't in field A, it's over there at the edge of field D and it's down the road or, you know, they didn't use, we haven't found any cannonballs, so maybe they didn't use cannons. I wonder how those kind of things play out against the the historians versus the archaeologists, I guess, or the misconceptions versus the groundwork. Yeah, I mean, that is... As more battlefields get investigated archaeologically, that's becoming a more frequent occurrence that where we think battlefields are, it's not quite right. You know, the the most uh, well-known example of that in relatively recent years was Bosworth. And it it wasn't a project that I uh, was part of, you know, the main project. Uh, It was led by Dr. Glenn Ford. And for years decades, centuries almost, the site at Ambien Hill was accepted as the battlefield. And that was because lots of historians had, you know, basically said, this is where it is. And no one had really, no one had any reason to question it because no one had done any archaeology there by that, uh, at that time. So once they started the project, it took them five years of work, but they then found the very first cannonball from the battle, something like a mile and a half away from the Ambien Hill site. And of course, 
where there was one cannonball, there became two cannonballs, and eventually there was loads. It's like 40 or 50. I think it's probably about 50 now, judging by the other bits. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Work that has been done. And of course, you can't argue with that. You can't argue with the physical archaeological evidence in the ground. Um, and we're starting to see a similar picture emerging with some work I'm involved with, uh, the Battlefields Trust at Stowe on the Wold. And it's still kind of ongoing at the moment, but we have been testing a whole load of uh, areas around the general landscape uh, surrounding the town, including parts of the registered battlefields, as well as other areas. And it, based on the evidence we've got at the moment, it seems that the battle is fought a lot closer into the town than has been previously thought. And that is well outside of the registered area. We need to do a bit more work to try and confirm all of this. Um, but yeah, it's looking like potentially that's another case where the registered area is a bit wrong. And again, that's based just on some historical interpretation before battlefield archaeology was a thing, really. And it just became, well, it's just been accepted because some historians made a sort of vaguely compelling case and we just sort of went with it. So it's really interesting that that is, you know, is a thing. Some battlefields are, are well known, like Sedgemoor, for example, you know, everyone knows where that is. There's archaeological evidence to back it up. It's, it's right there. Um, but it's not always the case. That has an interesting implication in terms of the protection of battlefields. Because if you imagine development taking place on or very near to a battlefield, you might be protecting the wrong bit. You know, if your big red line is in the wrong area and the battle's actually a mile or two away, you might just say, oh, well, it's not in the red area. It's a mile or two away. Carry on. You know, we won't, we won't put a planning condition that says you have to do a battlefield sort of metal detector survey or anything like that. We'll just sort of go, oh, well, the battlefield is two miles away. It's not important. And in a way, you'd be fairly justified in saying that as a planning archaeologist or whatever. But so that's why trying to actually accurately work out where these sites are is quite important, because even if development is going to happen on these sites or parts of these sites, sometimes there's not a lot you can do about it. But the important thing is that the archaeological information is gathered in the appropriate way, because if not, it's going to get destroyed and it's information that's lost. And battlefield oh. remains are typically very fragile as well, because they are, as I said before, unstratified in the topsoil. All it needs is a big machine to come in and within a few seconds, it'll all be gone. So working out exactly where they are is quite important in that respect. I mean, the, yeah, the implications of that, I'm just wondering, you know, you have the battlefields marked out on OS maps and other areas. And if you shift that, then you lose protection in one area, then you might ne never regain it in the you know, housing crisis and all that. 
could be really interesting uh, balance. But I, I'm thinking of a specific example. I wonder if you can comment. I hear a lot about the battle at battle, or should I say the Battle of Hastings. Yeah. And there's a lot of debate there about did they build the church on Senlac Hill because of the battle took there, or was it where actually they rested afterwards? And I, I've heard that they actually haven't found a lot of finds on the hill, but they have down the road. I well, wonder if you ever got a personal experience of that. I think you do. I, I, I do have a little bit of experience of it. Yeah, I, I was lucky to do um, a little bit of work there a few, quite a few years ago now, actually, when they did the time team program looking at the, the battle. It was a sort of time team special that they did. And we did some work on the actual battlefield, what is, you know, by, by Battle Abbey. Uh, and, and we looked at uh, an alternative site as well that had been proposed. The main problem, really, with battles of that period, you know, this is a thousand years ago, is that most of the stuff that's going to be dropped or broken in that battle is going to be made of iron. And iron will degrade very, very badly in most conditions. It will also be broken up very easily by things like ploughing. So even if something was there from the battle, it may just be destroyed. Um, and, and there's sort of other factors at play as well, like uh, modern contamination and, and things like that. So we sort of tried to get around that on the battlefields below Battle Abbey by kind of stripping down these big, long trenches to, to try and expose some slightly deeper material. And we found some medieval stuff, but we, we didn't find anything that was as early as 1066. Um, however, the work was very relatively limited. And just because there wasn't any evidence, it doesn't mean that there wasn't a battle there in this case. My general feeling about was it a Battle Abbey or was it not, is that it was a Battle Abbey. That, that's my personal opinion. Uh, you know, I think Battle Abbey was built in William the Conqueror's lifetime. I, I don't think it would be down the road. I think, you know, it's a symbol. It's a statement. Um you know, it, the, the high altar might not be right on the position where Harold, you know, met his end or whatever. But, you know, broadly speaking, my gut feeling is, despite the general lack of evidence, I think it's still there, really. Um, the geology works as well. It's just an interesting one uh, from yeah. visiting it, knowing it quite well. It's a, a beautiful site. And as I often do in these things, I encourage people to to visit it uh, it's a lovely yeah. vista and it's got a great trail but i just wanted yeah if uh, if it tied into your expert uh, assessment so that's yeah great. i mean I, I i'm no expert in that period really but the theory that was put across in the program uh based off of this work was that it was there was this sort of narrow causeway almost uh that was a very sensible place for the saxons to defend and it, it was sort of almost billed as an alternative site, you know, oh, we, we've come up with a new alternative. But the reality of it is that it's all part of the same hill where Battle Abbey is. Um, and as you guys will know, of course, the vast majority of battles are fought on roads or next to roads or to control roads, you know, because that's how you move armies about, you know, and you need to stop the enemy going up the road to get to the place beyond, you know, so... The fact that there was this road there and there was a hill, you know, it's it's at the very least got all the classic elements of a battlefield of that period, you know.
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what also presents a challenge for you folks in terms of assessing the site, particularly around Battle Abbey, is that it's a building, it was at one stage a building site because they had to build the abbey. So therefore, any material would likely have been disturbed anyhow. Absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right there. And that, that's one of the key considerations that you have to take in, into account is, is any post-battle disturbance that might have gone on. You know, things being dumped in the fields or, or material being removed for some reason, or, or even natural processes like uh, hill wash, what we call colluvium, you know, being washed down and burying things that, so, you know, so we can't reach them with a metal detector, basically. Um and part of battle is also built up as a modern town. So you can't really explore the whole site archaeologically, even if you wanted to. Um, so, yeah, there are, are all, all sorts of modern problems that you also have to deal with. And sometimes you only end up with these little pockets that you're really able to examine properly. That leads me on to something else that I wanted to ask you about, which was the challenges which you, you talked about already, but also the potential pitfalls in your work and i'm not sort of saying that as to try and sort of say oh battlefield archaeologists don't know what they're talking about um <laughs> but you must be aware that there are just as for somebody like myself as a historian who buries themselves in archival stuff there are things that you've got to be aware of in that process about biases and reliability and, and whether or not you can confirm what you're pulling out of these sources there must be equivalents for you in your line of work yeah, I mean, archaeology at, at the bottom line is all about interpreta interpretation and interpreting the evidence that you have. It's basically storytelling based on evidence. And no one can ever know at the end of the day because you can never go back and check. So all you're doing really is presenting a compelling argument based on the physical evidence and also something that ties in potentially with the documentary evidence doesn't always of course sometimes you get archaeological evidence that will contradict the written evidence however all we're trying to do is logically make sense of what we find in the ground um, i don't think at any point we can give the definitive answer really um, you know, we can say this is what's in the ground. This is what we think. Um, but, you know, people may come along in the future and take work that we've done and, and reinterpret it. That, that's kind of the beauty of archaeology in that once you've done a project and you've archived all the material, it becomes accessible to anyone in the future. Much as we do today with antiquarian type work or, or, or even work from, say, the 20th century where we'll go back to sites and we'll reinterpret them and we'll say, oh, this person, you know, they thought it was this, but actually they were completely wrong and it was this. I'm, I'm certain in the future people will do the same with battlefields. Techniques will develop, you know, methods of dating things will get better or, or testing things, you know, the chemical signature of lead or something, you know, things like that will improve over time and, and that might add new dimensions into the interpretation. So... Yeah, I think as long as we're aware of all of that uh, and don't get sort of, don't put it on a pedestal and say, this is the answer, it can never be changed. You know, it's just the answer that we've come up with. Brilliant. I mean, that's 
yeah, looking forward to seeing what's going to happen is brilliant. I'm just wondering, looking back then, so far in your in your career, what have been like the standout moments? What have you been your most enjoyable memories or finds, particular items, maybe? Um, well, I mean, working on the Waterloo project really has has been a highlight for me. Um, it, it was one of those sites that I was always interested in. I'm sure I'm not alone in this with you guys. Um, but uh, no, I'm afraid not. You know, we're, we're, we're with you there. <laughs> exactly. Um, but so, yeah, working there has just been a real privilege and, and a real kind of boyhood dream. You know, I similarly watched a lot of Sharp when I was a kid and all that kind of stuff. Um, another site that I was very uh, excited to work on what was Bosworth. Um, I was part of a, a small survey a, a few years back where we just did a, a little bit on, on part of the battlefield. Um, but I managed to find an enormous great medieval cannonball that had been fired during the battle um, that was, uh, you know, it was the, almost the size of a small melon, you know, it was, it was quite large. And uh, and that was just an amazing moment to to see that and, and to know that the first I was the first person to see it, you know, since the person who put it down the muzzle of the gun. Um, that, that was pretty amazing. Um, and in a slightly non battlefield, but still systematic metal detecting sort of site, I was very privileged uh, a good long while ago now uh, to work on the Staffordshire Horde site, which. Uh, I don't know if you guys know anything about that, but it's basically a load of Saxon uh, gold that was found uh, up in Staffordshire, funnily enough. And uh, I, I wasn't part of the main excavation when they first found it, but a few years later, they uh, ploughed the field for the first time. And of course, ploughing will churn things up a little bit. And we came in to, to basically pick up anything that was left uh, that had been missed in the initial excavation. We found, you know, a good few bits and pieces, uh, including the other cheek piece from uh, the helmet. that they, they found one of the cheek pieces in the main excavation and loads of other little bits of the helmet. And we found the corresponding one from the other side of, of the helmet. Um, it wasn't me that found it, but uh, it was just amazing to, to be there, you know, and to see this. It, gold is amazing when it comes out of the ground because it's just the same as when it went in, basically. It's bright and vibrant and, and to see this thing come out of the ground it, it was an amazing moment yeah i mean gold doesn't tarnish does it unlike everything no. else so you know you, you dig it up dust it off and and there it is um what about anything on your hit list so to speak is there anything that you look at and go yeah i'd really like to to go there and do x y and z yeah i mean the waterloo would have been on there but to be honest um I, I, I would love to look at some of the Peninsula War sites, some of the, the siege sites. I, I'm quite interested in, you know, uh, siege works and things like that, where uh, people are digging these temporary siege works during different sieges and, and trenches and things like that. I'm kind of interested in all that sort of stuff. So that's like Suedadwadi, Badahoff. Exactly. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to have a look at some of those sites. Um, that would be amazing. Um, slightly earlier. With my sort of interest in the late medieval period and artillery and things like that, hence the excitement of the cannonball from Bosworth, um, I'd really like to look at some of the Swiss Burgundian war sites from the 1470s in, in Switzerland, 
Um, there's some enormous battles there with loads and loads of artillery. Uh, and, and they're just, no one's ever looked at them, uh, as far as I'm aware. Uh, and there'd be loads of stuff there to find. And the, the Burgundian army is exceptionally advanced for the time. They don't win many battles, weirdly. Um, but but it's uh, they're almost like a pike and shot army in the late medieval period. You know, they've got pikes, they've got loads and loads of cannons, they've got handguns, all sorts of stuff. So I'd love to go and do some of those as well. But it's just getting the money, isn't it? And the funding. <laughs> it always comes down to funding and money. It does, unfortunately. Yeah, it's I just, just need to, uh, to win the lottery or um, find some sort of uh, sugar daddy or something. <laughs> okay. I mean, I don't know if we can help with that. Um, but if anyone is a sugar daddy and wants to sponsor you online, uh, where can they find out more information about? And let's, let's face it, hopefully more about the archaeological work rather than... Yeah, um, let's make this clear. If you are a sugar daddy, please do not contact me. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I have to point uh, people towards initially Waterloo Uncovered, an amazing project uh, doing amazing archaeology with uh, military veterans, modern veterans at Waterloo, uh, waterlooncovered.com. Check it out on all the social medias as well. Um, if anyone is interested in stuff that I do, then you're welcome to come seek me out on, on Twitter or Instagram. It's at Conflict Archeo with an A-E-O at the end. Uh, or indeed uh, on my website, which is uh, battlefieldarchaeology.weebly.com. Yes, I have a free website because I'm cheap. Nothing There's wrong nothing with that. Wrong. <laughs> Funny, Marcus and I do this sometimes. We say exactly the same thing at pretty much exactly the same time. We've done it again. There is nothing wrong with a free website. Sam, <laughs> great to have you back. I know we spoke um, on the Waterloo Uncovered podcast, but really great to talk to you and, and hear about your personal experiences. Sugar daddies can go away, but if there are rich benefactors who want to be involved in cutting edge archaeological work, then I'd urge them to get in touch. And thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Th thanks so much for having me, guys. It's been a pleasure. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.